Hi, this is Brian Dolan with the law firm Pepper Hamilton. With President-elect Donald Trump taking office in a couple weeks, we thought it was a good time to discuss a topic that a lot of our clients have been calling us about since November 9th. What does a Donald Trump presidency mean for the financial services industry? Joining me today from Pepper's financial services practice are Pepper partners Rick Ekman and Greg Novak and special counsel Mark DeBurton. Gentlemen, welcome. Rick, let's start with you. Overall, what do you think the impact of a Trump presidency will have on our economy in general and specifically the financial services industry? Well, thanks, Brian. I have been impressed with the picks that he has made so far in the sense that that unlike the present administration, the Trump cabinet clearly has a decidedly uh, you know, business uh, bent. I mean, if you look at the you know, the current cabinet, I don't know if any of them have any outside business experience, other, and most of them are policy types or uh, have been in government most of their lives. So I think you're going to see a very, very different uh, focus in this administration, uh, which I think is going to be very positive for the, financial, for the economy in general and the financial services industry uh, in particular. I think you're going to see them focus on uh, cutting regulatory burdens and uh, regulatory overload and, and the bureaucratic uh, activism that we have seen, you know, in this administration, the executive orders, you know, when, when things uh, couldn't get through Congress, they implemented things <clears throat> that attempted to achieve their goals from an administrative standpoint. So I don't think you're going to see that as much, if at all, in this administration. Um, and I think their, their overall focus in terms of growing the economy, their whole theory on growing the economy uh, is to help businesses you know, hire workers, be profitable, make money, uh, and expand in the United States. And one of the easiest ways to do that, at least from their perspective, is uh, to decrease the amount of regulatory uh, burden that is placed on business. And I think that uh, you know, Steve Mnuchin, who is the new Treasury Secretary-designate is a former banker. He has he has turned around IndyMac, in, which was a failing bank in California, and created One West, which has become a very successful bank that was acquired by CIT. And so he knows uh, what you know what the financial services industry faces. We had to deal with you know, some very difficult, you know, collection issues, you know, foreclosures, I mean, sort of the, sort of the dark side, if you will, of the, of the financial services industry in, in terms of having to, you know, kick people out of their houses. And so he, he, he knows what is uh, involved in that. He knows the regulatory burdens that banks face. Um, so I think that you're going to see a refreshing uh, focus, if you will, on returning banks to their roots, which is, you know, to help their uh, local communities grow, their businesses located in their communities grow, um, and to make more credit available to more businesses so that they can hire more workers and really focus on that as uh, one of the things that uh, they're going to be doing. Now, the incoming administration will have the opportunity to name a new comptroller of the currency, head of the FDIC, some of the FDIC directors, and members of the Federal Reserve Board. What type of person do you anticipate him naming, and what are the likely changes at those institutions going to be? Well, he really is going to have a, the ability to, to remake really all of the federal banking agencies uh, and, and put people that 
uh, he thinks are going to drive them in a different direction in my mind uh, than they they have been. Uh, and and if you look at the list, he's going to be in a position to uh, immediately name three of the seven Fed governors in 2017. In 2018, Chairman Yellen's term is over and the vice chairman's term is over, so he's going to, at that point, would have the ability to name five of the seven members of, of the Fed. So you're going to see a, a, a dramatic change there. Um, in terms of the OCC, the uh, comptroller's term is over in, in March of 2017. Whether he stays on uh, that long is, is unclear, but he would have the ability to, to nominate somebody to uh, take over that role. Um, FDIC, he uh, will be able to uh, replace three of the five uh, board members. And in uh, November of 2017, uh, Marty Grunberg's term as chairman is, is, uh, will be expiring so that he will be able to really uh, put his own people there and, and change the direction, you know, of that agency. On the FTC, he, I think there are four, uh, four of the five commissioners would, would be able to be uh, uh, named. I think there are two vacancies today. So I, I suspect that he, uh, if you look at what he's done to date, um, you know, he has picked businessmen and people that have been successful in business and that know the industries you know, that they're, where, where they made their money. So obviously Goldman Sachs has played a big role in terms of uh, a couple of his picks uh, to date. I would expect that you will see other businessmen or bankers or that he will focus on those kinds of individuals, those with a business background, and not necessarily policy wonks, which is what you have seen uh, more in the, in the present administration. So. Remains to be seen. There's an awful lot of uh, things that are going to have to happen, and, and we're certainly not that far down the, the list in terms of you know him focusing on these at, at this uh, early date in the administration. But I, I think you're going to see a, a real sea change in terms of uh, the kinds of uh, people that he will nominate to uh, run these various uh, federal banking agencies. Yeah, so it's Mark Deberton. I'll add one, one point to that, um, and that's that you think about, like, the changes that have occurred with respect to the OCC, for example, as a result of Dodd-Frank Act. The OCC is really no longer engaged uh, in, you know, consumer uh, matters to the extent that they were prior to Dodd-Frank. Uh, the focus of that agency now is primarily on safety and soundness. And so to Rick's point about choosing folks with a business background, uh, I expect that they would you know, choose individuals who are the most suitable for the current mission of those agencies, which in some cases, like the OCC, has, has changed over the last you know, decade. Now, one of the cabinet nominations that President Trump has announced is Senator Sessions to be Attorney General. What changes, Rick, do you anticipate at the DOJ as they relate to the financial services industry? Well, as, as we have seen uh, with the current administration, there has been a real focus on the financial services industry uh, by the Department of Justice. You know, they've gone after, you know, companies involved in, in the mortgage meltdown, uh, there have been huge uh, uh, civil penalties that have been assessed, uh, and there was a real focus on the Operation Choke Point on ways to get at 
certain industries that this administration, or at least the Department of Justice, felt were ones that needed to be uh, curtailed. I don't think that you're going to see that continue uh, in a Trump administration Department of Justice. I think it will be returned to its roots, if you will, uh, you know, of fighting uh, you know, fraud and, and criminal conduct, and that they will not be in a mood to, to continue criminalizing, uh, you know, conduct which, uh, you know, in the past, uh, you know, was never viewed as such, um, you know, particularly when it came to, you know, those uh, operating in the financial service industry. So it'll be interesting to see what changes are made there's going to be a whole new set of uh, U.S. attorneys out there. Um, they're still going to, uh, you know, there's still going to be prosecutions. There's no doubt about that. But I think that uh, things like Operation Choke Point, where you had the Department of Justice, you know, going after payment processors who were processing certain types of transactions uh, with the express goal, clearly, of putting those businesses out of business, uh, and that continues today with the whole uh, effort to, uh, I think they call it discontinuance today with respect to the, uh, the banking agencies, the de-risking uh, you know, focus that uh, companies, rather than beef up their compliance activities in certain areas, you know, are basically getting out of uh, servicing certain kinds of businesses because of the concern that the Department of Justice and perhaps even the CFPB will, uh, you know, go after them because they're somehow participating in what they view as, as uh, fraudulent conduct or conduct that, um, you know, is against certain consumers' interests. So I think you're going to see a, a, a different focus uh, under this new administration and that, it, in my mind, for our client base will be a welcome change. Greg, do you see a return of Glass-Steagall? Well, that's an interesting question, Brian. Uh, I guess it's useful to remind people what Glass-Steagall was and what it accomplished uh, when it was in force. You have to go back to the Depression and the fact that banks were um, all undermined with bad loans. Uh, the, the Franklin Roosevelt 100-day closure of banks in order to allow them to get their houses in order, et cetera, at the beginning of the Great Depression. But one of the root causes that was identified at the time was that banks were using deposits to invest in securities, in the stock market, the bond market, et cetera. And so the Glass-Steagall Act created a wall. It separated investment banking from traditional banking. And the theory being that investment banks, especially those engaged in proprietary trading, should not be able to um, uh, avoid uh, the risks associated with their investments by having a backstop of the federal treasury through the uh, FDIC or other insurance programs that were created at the time. So for many, many, many years, uh, Glass-Steagall was in place, but it slowly was eroded with uh, changes to the banking laws that allowed, it, allowed banks to create holding companies and then out of holding companies to create brother-sister entities that uh, engaged in underwriting and brokerage activities traditionally relegated to the investment banks. So finally, uh, it was decided that Glass-Steagall was an anachronism and was no longer needed. On the campaign trail, both Trump and Clinton 
champion a return to Glass-Steagall, uh, reimposing the ban between uh, investment banking and uh, traditional banking. If we're to believe the candidates, uh, this would be high on their agenda as a way to reestablish the uh, the uh, separation and make sure that too big to fail no longer affects the U.S. taxpayer in the way it did before. Personally, I think that's a somewhat of a sledgehammer approach to a perceived problem. I do think that the Volcker rule is a form of a, a Glass-Steagall because the Volcker rule, which came in as part of the Dodd-Frank Act in 2010, mandated that banks could not engage in proprietary trading and as a result, most of the large banks had closed down their proprietary trading desks, had spun them off. Um, Dodd-Frank limited the amount that banks could invest in hedge funds if they were the sponsors or other originators and other types of investment funds. And so, as a result, we've had a de facto form of Glass-Steagall in place without the actual separation of the investment banking and brokerage functions from traditional deposit banking. But the reason why I said it's somewhat of an illusory response is if you think about how banks make money if they're not engaged in this type of trading, they make money by uh, making loans. Well, if they make a loan to a company that's heavily engaged in proprietary trading, then their risk of repayment is essentially the same as if they'd engaged in the proprietary trading itself. And so that means the bank needs different underwriting standards and credit standards and in effect, it's acting as if it were a proprietary trader, but it's doing it one step removed. Um, will that stop banks from having the same systemic risk introduced to them associated with uh, securities trading? I don't know, and I, guess, I think that's anyone's guess. So I do think you will see at least um, President-elect Trump taking his campaign promise, at least considering it. I don't think he'll back off of that altogether. But whether or not we get a complete return to Glass-Steagall in its Depression-era glory, I don't think we'll see that. But we will see some form of that. There's already been talk, of course, about relaxing the Volcker rule because in um, one man's or one woman's perception of proprietary trading is another person's market-making activity, is another person's swap counterparty activity. And everyone says, oh, no, no, we weren't trying to stop that. But where does market-making stop and proprietary trading begin? And where does being a swap counterparty to an energy swap stop being essentially a market-making function or, or a money-making function and turn into a proprietary trading function? I guess if you're acting like a true broker and you lay off the risk, in a swap transaction to another counterparty, and you're simply acting as the middleman in the middle, then um, you haven't taken on any systemic risk. Well, the dirty little secret is most Wall Street banks have always run their prop trading books essentially at a net zero, and it's only when they get stuck in a short squeeze or when the music stops and people get out of their positions too quickly and they can't grab collateral that they've had an exposure. And those are truly, you know, black swan type of events. but. You know, I'd like to ask my colleague uh, Rick Ekman what your thoughts are. You're coming from a banking perspective. Do you think we'll see a return to Glass-Steagall? I would find that highly unlikely. I think that, you know, there is a bigger issue here, which is, you know, the too-big-to-fail issue. And I think if you look at uh, Henserling's Choice Act, he presents an interesting 
different kind of way, you know, to basically decrease uh, the regulatory burdens which are placed on banks, but at the same time increase the amount of capital uh, that they're required to hold to make it less likely that they that they would fail. Um, so I, I think, you know, going back to Glass-Steagall <laughs> pre-1999, I think is, is, is highly unlikely. The banking industry was extraordinarily uh, good at figuring out ways around it in conjunction, quite frankly, with a lot of of the uh, the bank the banking agencies, you know, particularly the Fed. So uh, I think it's it's a difficult issue. I, I, I certainly think, though, that we could see a simplifying, if you will, of the vocal rule, which um, you know you already saw the Fed recently gave banks, I guess, could could apply uh, for a five year extension uh, to unwind you know their current position. So. I think you're going to see a lot of uh, you know, focus on this, but I would not expect the uh, Glass-Steagall Act to you know, come back in the form that it was in 1999 before it was abolished. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that 100%. It would be very difficult to turn back the clock to pre-1999, um, especially, as you said, the, um, the way the regulators had been slowly but surely eroding its its uh, efficacy with different workarounds that they had approved for banks through brother-sister entities or otherwise to get involved in proprietary trading. So, And remember, proprietary trading does for, uh, provide a very valuable function in our, in our financial system. It's important that, um, that companies that need liquidity can get liquidity without having to resort to the Fed deposit, uh, the, the, the Fed the discount window. Um, and if you don't have certain pools of money, like banks, being able to play in that space, then sources of liquidity dry up. And sooner or later, it becomes a, a problem for the economy large on, on a larger basis. Yeah, and one of the, you know, the, the argument, which I really haven't heard made recently, but one of the primary arguments to abolishing Glass-Steagall was, you know, it, it allowed our banks in the United States uh, to be competitive on a worldwide basis. I mean, banks uh, in, in other countries, um, you know, had the ability to uh, to do all kinds of trading that, that we, uh, we did not, and that was uh, creating inefficiencies in a sort of uneven playing field. Now, whether that argument uh, continues today would be, uh, you know, an interesting uh, subject to uh, to look into. But I think that's still an important function uh, of our government is to make sure that our banks operate in a safe and sound manner. But more importantly, uh, or at least as importantly, you know, are competitive on a worldwide basis. And, and what I'll add to the discussion is, you know, first of all, we're not that. Uh, far removed from the second largest downturn in United economic downturn in, in U.S. history. So, I do not believe that you're going to see uh, a market easing of restrictions on proprietary trading. I agree with Greg that uh, the Volcker rule is really you can view it as a, a further refinement of Glass-Steagall. And with respect to the Volcker rule, what I think you're more likely to see are things like clarifications. You know, to Greg's point earlier, 
um, you know, th there's a fine line between my, what might constitute, you know, proprietary trading, market making, um, you know, uh, hedging activities. I think what you'll see is is further clarification. Things like, you know, what constitutes a trading account, uh, and and an easing to the extent that, you know, the, the rules become more manageable, more understandable, uh, but but not a, a fundamental. Uh, reversal of the restrictions that are in place. Along those lines, I read recently that, you know, in order to uh, dramatically change the investment limitations that were imposed by Dodd-Frank Act, you'd need a 60-member Senate, uh, Senate majority. And I don't think you're going to see that, again, this close still to the second largest economic downturn in U.S. history. Well, that's an interesting point. Um, the rules of the Senate still allow for uh, unlimited debate, essentially filibuster, in all circumstances except budget reconciliation. So in order for them to use just a simple majority to accomplish this, they would have to go back to um, the full Senate, and unless they can somehow get it under reconciliation, and the likelihood is that won't happen. And so... Um, it's doubtful, unless there is a very robust replacement, that the Senate is going to adopt a rule that would uh, roll back the clock uh, in, in that way. Now, Greg, what do you see for the future of Dodd-Frank? Wow, uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's an interesting question. The, um, the Dodd-Frank Act was a massive, massive retooling of the American financial regulatory landscape. Uh, it affects banks brokerage firms, investment advisors, private funds, private equity funds, hedge funds, registered mutual funds. So the entire landscape got an examination and things that previously were not considered to be systemic risk all of a sudden were under the microscope as the government attempted to try to ring or at least identify systemic risk in the system. They couldn't ring it all out, but they certainly have tried. If we break it up into segments, if, let's look at if the, the fund world first. I think in one of the things that, that Dodd-Frank did was require the registration of investment advisors for all types of funds with some very limited exceptions. It also was an unfunded mandate to the states by raising the de minimis amount for federal regulation. It essentially put the burden for review of fund managers and funds that were below certain thresholds back on the states. The states weren't prepared for that. They Most of them had shut down their uh, compliance programs and enforcement divisions and dramatically cut them back after Dismia back in the 1990s had shifted most of the burden for this to the feds. So there were two things that happened with regard to funds and advisors um, in, in Dodd-Frank. The first was a larger number of advisors were brought within the ambit of regulation. And then secondly, a bright line was drawn between those uh, that were regulated by the states and those that were regulated by the feds. I don't think that line is going to move uh, in any way in particular. Perhaps the de minimis amounts will be raised a little bit to shield smaller advisor and advisory firms from the scrutiny of the feds. But that just means that they're stuck with state regulation. And if you've ever dealt with trying to get a state regulator to approve an investment advisor under the thresholds, it is a bear. 
they don't understand the rules in the main, and you're constantly educating them as to how advisors work and what they mean. Now, that will change once they tool up, but they're still expending funds that they didn't previously expend. So uh, I don't think you'll see much tinkering there. I think the industry has, for the most part, learned how to live with the advisor registration rules and the custody rules and the accounting rules. And so I don't think you're going to see um, any great groundswell to repeal that, except in one area, and that area is in startups. You still have uh, people who want to live the American dream and start their advisory firm and start a small hedge fund and let it grow and see where it goes. Now, the cost of doing that between the fund documents and then getting your registration materials together for your advisor is not inexpensive, and so the barrier to entry has gone up. If we think there's going to be any change on, on that side, that's where I think you might see it. In terms of brokerage, um, Dodd-Frank primarily affected the brokerage firms that were owned by the large banks, and there they're affected primarily with the Volcker rule and the push-out rules, and I do think that um, there you will see scrutiny because the banks don't want to lose a very lucrative business uh, that they've had. Um, and I do think that in terms of some of the other things uh, that we've seen out of Dodd-Frank, uh, the CFPB, and for that one I'm going to defer to Rick. I know he's uh, you know made a, a small career out of dealing with the CFPB and probably has some very strong opinions on that one. Rick? Well, it is a, a fascinating time right now, uh, and that is primarily because uh, there is a case which has been well reported on called PHH, the uh, CFPB, and the PHH case uh, <clears throat> was heard in front of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and it was basically a appeal for administrative ruling uh, you know, from the CFPB where, you know, Director Cordry himself imposed a, I think it was a $109 million fine uh, against PHH, which was sort of a tenfold increase from what the administrative law judge had uh, imposed. But the interesting thing about the case was that what PHH uh, appealed it to the, the circuit court and the circuit court in a blistering opinion uh, found in favor of PHH both uh, on the RESPA uh, count, but more importantly, they found that the structure of the CFPB was unconstitutional. It was unconstitutional because of the fact that the director Cordry is a sole director and that he needs to be, with all the powers that he is given, it, the court found that he was essentially had as much power uh, as the President of the United States, um, and therefore the President needed the uh, power to be able to fire him uh, at will and not uh, with cause, which is what the, the statute provided for. So uh, that case is currently, uh, there's been a motion to hear that case en banc uh, in front of the entire D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. But, you know, so you have that as a backdrop, uh, you know, and then we had the election, and uh, which surprised a lot of people, and you have uh, President Trump taking office on January 20th. 
Um, now, importantly, even though the court found that, that that restriction on the ability of the president to fire without cause was stayed uh, as a result of the uh, motion uh, on Bach, the thinking uh, that I have heard and, and read about uh, and I think will happen is that the president on his own accord, if he gets a, an opinion from his counsel, the White House uh, uh, counsel's office saying that um, <clears throat> that structure is uh, a violation of the presidential prerogative to hire and fire people that work for him, um, uh, that he, day one, will fire Director Cordray if he does not resign. And so I think you're going to see that happen. Uh, I would be surprised if it didn't happen. Um, and then, you know, there's a whole chain of events that will have to occur, including, you know, I guess the deputy, uh, David Silverman, will be, uh, would be the acting director uh, without portfolio, of course. And then the, the president's going to appoint somebody, uh, nominate somebody new. Uh, and if you recall, there was a lot of uh, controversy about uh, Richard Cordray's appointment, and uh, sort of the net result of that is that Harry Reid invoked the nuclear option, as I recall, and as a result, the, the Senate only uh, asked to uh, approve any any appointment that's nominated, any nominee, including cabinet nominees, which are going to be coming up shortly, um, to a simple majority in the Senate, and it's not subject to the filibuster rule. But clearly, you're going to see somebody who is uh, certainly more conservative uh, than uh, than Director Cordray uh, was, who's less of an activist, who is more as a businessman, who is going to be. Uh, finding ways to promote, you know, credit being uh, granted to consumers in this country as opposed to ways to basically restrict it and allocate credit to, you know, away from certain parts of the uh, population, you know, that, uh, you know, those uh, such as Senator Court Review shouldn't get the credit or they shouldn't get it at the price that, uh, you know, folks want to lend it out at. So I think there's going to be big changes at the CFPB. Um, and that's probably worth talking about uh, in a separate uh, in a separate podcast at some point. Hey, Rick, here's a, a good question for you on the hypothetical. What happens if um, the president does get that memorandum, fires Cordray, and Cordray refuses to leave on the grounds that he disagrees with the president's uh, counsel? Well, I think the remedy is that he can sue the federal government for back pay, and that there's a, a case called Humphrey, which was decided, I guess, in the 30s when President Roosevelt uh, fired an appointee, and he, I, I do not think that a court is going to uh, stay uh, the president's decision. I don't think they have the right to do that. I think his remedy is limited to uh, a action for back pay. And well, he, he, wants can't, to, he can't stay. He has to go. He can't stay. He has to go. And if he doesn't leave his office, they will send federal marshals to escort him out. One thing I'll, I'll mention with the CFPB is the power that the director wields. So a changing director could have a very significant impact on the CFPB. When you think about, you know, some of the... Uh, actions that Director Cordray has taken that were lightning rod for criticism, uh, most of them really, in my mind, you know, focused in on, on the powerful discretion that he had available. For example, 
the abusive standard under Section 1031 of Dodd-Frank, huge criticism that the CFPB has, has never issued regulations, that they've really approached, you know, what constitutes an abusive actor practice uh, based on this, you know, idea, you, you know it when you see it. Well, a different director may not see it unless it's directly in front of their nose. And so I think that's a very uh, important thing to recognize, this, this, the extent of the authority that they have. I'll give you another example quickly. Section 1028 of Dodd-Frank Act, it gives the CFPB the authority uh, to restrict pre-dispute arbitration. We know that under Director Cordray, they're in the process of, of finalizing uh, a rule that's expected to be issued shortly after uh, the first of, of the year, 2017. Well, the Act gives the CFPB the authority to consider restrictions. It doesn't compel such restrictions. And so a different director might use that same grant of authority to consider further consumer uh, protections and decide that they're unnecessary. I guess the other part of uh, Dodd-Frank that we should talk about, sort of intertwined with all of this, is the swaps rules. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is swaps received a very august position in our legal system as a result of Graham Leach-Bliley and some other um, amendments to the bankruptcy code where a swap <coughs> had preferred position above even secured creditors under certain circumstances. And uh, as a result, we saw a proliferation of swap contracts of all sorts, most of them bespoke, all of them um, extremely effective transferers of, um, of risk as well as wealth. And what we did see in the crisis in 2008 were bruising fights over collateral. Who held the collateral? Who was entitled to the collateral? Under what circumstances were, was collateral supposed to be paid? What Dodd-Frank did was mandate, first of all, a division uh, between securities-based swaps that were based on a single security and all other swaps. Securities-based swaps are under the jurisdiction of the SEC. All other swaps are under the jurisdiction of the CFTC. So that's a, an empowerment of the CFTC that we had never seen in history. CFTC stands, of course, for the Commodity Future Trading Commission. Uh, it, as a result of that empowerment, as well as some other legislative provisions, we saw the creation of swaps exchange facilities. And the mandated trading, if you will, of um, most swaps through the swaps exchange facilities. Well, why did they do that? Well, one of the issues, again, with swaps was you didn't know who the counterparty was because of novations and daisy chain um, offsets. You didn't know where the collateral was, and you always had counterparty risk, so therefore you were constantly demanding collateral because you didn't know if the other party on the swap would actually perform. By interposing an exchange, you're almost guaranteeing that the counterparty will perform, number one. Uh, number two, by using an exchange, you're standardizing terms and conditions. And number three, by forcing uh, both parties to state where their assets are that are being used to fund the swaps, you're virtually guaranteeing that there will be performance. And then another rule was that you had... Um, Nonprofits and governmental agencies and pension plans needed to demonstrate that they had the competence, the economic competence and the legal competence in order to enter into a swap contract because there were so many instances where 
municipalities were entering into swap contracts as investments and they had no idea what risk they were taking, what collateral they were putting on the table, and more importantly, how much it would cost them to get out of the swap contract in the event that the economics moved against them. I don't think you are going to see erosion of those rules anytime soon. Um, the industry has sort of gotten used to how to deal with them, and you do have some semblance of order now in the swaps market that you didn't have. And it, the rules certainly haven't trimmed the appetite for swaps because their numbers are as high as they were pre-meltdown. Um, pre so uh, I think that part of Dodd-Frank is probably not going to be changed, except to the extent that the Volcker rule um, is modified and therefore allows the large brokers' houses and banks possibly to come in as counterparties. Mark, I want to go back to the CFPB. Of the potential changes to the Bureau that may take place during Trump's presidency, what do you believe is the most likely to happen and why? So I think the, the most likely to happen is that we see a new director and, and that we see uh, a new director uh, shortly into the administration. As has already been discussed, uh, President Trump will have the ability uh, to replace Director Cordray and if Director Cordray you know, wished to stay in that job, he really does not have that choice. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of talk about uh, a lot of industry interest in having the CFPB uh, change its structure from a, a single director to a commission. I think that may happen. Uh, I think that some of the uh, support for that move may erode given the enormous discretion and power that the director of the CFPB wields and, and the same discretion that folks in the financial industry thought were abused by Director Cordray, they may feel otherwise when that discretion is in the hands of, of his or his replacement. Uh, so I think that a, a commission, uh, while it is certainly a strong possibility, I don't know that that one is as certain as some folks may believe it to be, again, because if a new director begins to act in a manner uh, very favorable to the industry, uh, the industry would, would probably want that to continue for a time. So a commission may happen perhaps further down the road, but I don't think that that's going to be uh, something that we would see immediately. So is a restructuring of the CFPB necessary in order for the financial services industry to see significant changes from what the industry has experienced to date from the agency? No, again, because the director wields so much discretionary authority. Uh, we've seen that, for example, with respect to the way that the CFPB has approached the abusive uh, standard of UDAP, unfair, deceptive, or abusive acts or practices since Section 1031 of the Dodd-Frank Act. Uh, rather than issuing regulations that would, you know, fence in what that term means, uh, the CFPB is, uh, has approached it from the standpoint of we know it when we see it. A new director uh, may not see it unless it's directly in front of their face. So uh, similarly, you've got, you know, sections of, of Dodd-Frank Act like Section 1028, which provides the CFPB authority uh, to impose restrictions on pre-dispute arbitration, yet, you know, it's a, it's a discretionary authority. 
And so a, a new director could decide in that case that the rules that are pending, which will have an enormous financial impact on the industry if, if they go into effect, uh, are either unnecessary or misplaced in their current form. Uh, so uh, bottom line is you could have tremendous change uh, seen from the CFPB uh, simply by replacing the director and, and not fundamentally changing the structure of that agency in any way. Rick, let's turn back to you. The CFPB has a number of controversial rulemaking in progress relating to small dollar loans, arbitration, collections, and prepaid cards. What do you think will happen to them? Well, as, as Mark said, the director, whoever it will be, does have tremendous amount of, of authority, even if you know, there are no changes to uh, the CFPB, although I have no doubt in my mind that that the, the House, which has already passed the Choice Act, um, you know, which would require the CFP budget, be, CFPB budget to be subject to a, the appropriations process, that there would be a board of, let's say, five, I think it's five members on a, you know, representative basis based upon, you know, political balance um, to, be, uh, to be put in place, which I think many view as, as just the, the right way that an agency should be structured so that even if you have a Republican, let's say, you know, who is the director, um, you know, many think that the, the Bureau could be run, you know, in a, in a much better manner, you know, with that kind of structure. That being said, you know, you do have some very controversial, uh, you know, rules which are, are currently pending. I mean, the small dollar rule, you know, which the Bureau put out uh, last June and, you know, comment period uh, finished up in, I think it was in September or October, I guess it was extended to. Um, and, and there were, I think, a million and a half comments that were provided on that rule alone. So there's no way, in my mind, that the, the Bureau, you know, could finalize that rule uh, anytime soon. And so you could see, uh, you know, that rule be shelved by the new director, um, that they could say that they needed to, to have more study being done uh, of the rule because, or the whole concept, you know, based upon the, uh, uh, you know, the comments, the voluminous number of comments that were made. Um, and so I just don't think that that rule is going to see the light of day. And the same thing with the, uh, the arbitration rule. That is a very controversial rule. Uh, it would <clears throat> eliminate the ability of, of uh, financial services companies to be able to compel uh, arbitration and to eliminate the possibility of class actions. Um, that, to me, is, is a huge issue for the financial services industry. And it is possible that, because that rule is, is relatively straightforward, um, and you could certainly see the Bureau try to uh, finalize that rule sometime between now and January 20th. Now, if any of these rules are finalized, uh, there's also uh, something called the Congressional Review Act, which uh, was passed in 1996 uh, as part of the Sabrifa legislation, uh, you know, which uh, if you have followed uh, how the CFPB makes rules, you certainly are familiar with how Sabrifa works. But this Congressional Re Review Act was passed as part of that, and it, it, it allows the Congress to to reject rules that an uh, agency would uh, promulgate, um, you know, within 60 days of, of, their, uh, of them being finalized. And so 
you could certainly see both houses of Congress, uh, you know, pass uh, legislation to uh, reject any rules, and that that uh, rule, by the way, is not subject to a filibuster. So uh, it would be just a majority vote on each uh, in each house, and I could see that happening if the bureau wanted to uh, accelerate that rule. But I think any rules that are, are pending uh, or that are finalized or will be finalized between now and the inauguration, uh, I don't think you're going to see the light of day. And I think that is a huge win for the financial services industry because uh, e either of those rules would have imposed uh, increased costs on certain industries uh, that are affected by that and uh, in some cases, you know, basically put the high-cost lending industry uh, pretty much out of business, uh, even based upon some of the studies that CFPB has done. So uh, good news in, in, in my mind for, uh, for the industry on both those fronts. I'll add one thought to um, what Rick just said, in particular to, to the cost of these rules. So one of the outcomes of, of the PHH mortgage decision is that assuming that, you know, the uh, uh, the, the director of, uh, of the CFPB is now subject to uh, uh, presidential oversight and, and that the agency is, is subject to uh, greater oversight by the executive branch, well, one outcome of that is that the, the regulations issued by the CFPB would now be subject to executive orders, including the executive order uh, 12866, which requires uh, cost-benefit analysis to be performed in connection with any rule. Now, the CFPB has, you know, when you look at some of the proposed rulemakings, well, well, they've gone down that path, you know, a bit, but someone could argue that now that the executive order applies, that that analysis was not sufficiently robust, did not fully take into account uh, all of the costs that, that might be imposed on the industry. So that's just another avenue uh, through which some of these rules that are pending might be subject to, you know, uh, being revisited. Rick, the CFPB has been very active in the enforcement area and has been criticized as regulating by enforcement. Do you see that continuing? I really don't. I think that the, uh, the Bureau really uh, needs to rethink how it approaches regulation and that doing it on the basis of issuing CIDs, uh, which is a whole other subject that, that really needs to be uh, remedied because of the tremendous burden that it places on on, on companies that receive them and the, the very low threshold that the CFPB has to meet to issue them. But that's a whole other discussion. But I, but I think that what you have seen is the CFPB has uh, taken on individual companies, uh, have uh, really spent you know, millions of dollars investigating them, uh, and come up with consent decrees because the companies have decided that it's cheaper to agree to a civil money penalty um, than to fight the CFPB in court. So I think you're going to see a, a, a reduction uh, in, in that approach and, and hopefully a return to uh, the idea of issuing regulations that there would be uh, ability of notice and comment so that there would be a opportunity for the industry, you know, to weigh in on what the consequences and costs are of various regulatory proposals that they may put forth, um, and and not do it on the basis of selective uh, consent decrees, 
um, which, uh, you know, Director Cordry himself has said uh, that you're committing compliance malpractice if you're not complying with the teachings of these consent decrees. And, you know, the consent decrees are not subject to, you know, notice and comment, and, and so it really not a, is, is not a very good uh, way to uh, legislate conduct in, in my mind. So I think that's going to be a big change in terms of how you, how you see the CFPB operating in the future. Greg, do you see a repatriation of offshore money coming? President-elect Trump during the campaign said that he was going to make it a point to repatriate uh, dollars that U.S. companies had earned but were, quote-unquote, stashing abroad, avoiding U.S. tax. So let's, let's deconstruct that proposition a little bit. First of all, um, where is the cash? Is the cash really stuffed abroad, or is it actually in U.S. banks or branches of U.S. banks? A study done by the Wall Street Journal a few months ago actually found that most of these dollars that are allegedly abroad are sitting in U.S. bank accounts. Now, they're titled in the names of the foreign subsidiaries, but they are actually here. So what does that mean? If you repatriate the dollars, it means there's a tax due, but it doesn't mean that the economic effect, the investment effect, if you will, of those dollars is going to change because they're already here. And if they're in the banks, that means the banks have to deploy them in some way in order to earn a return. If they're not earning a return, then obviously the banks don't want the dollars. So um, I think in terms of will the repatriation itself improve uh, U.S. infrastructure or investment? Probably not. But it will potentially raise, uh, raise tax revenue. So you have to understand how it was possible to avoid the tax in the first place. And most of these are transfer pricing type cases. Uh, a product is manufactured overseas. Let's call it a widget. The widget costs 25 cents to make. So the offshore manufacturer creates the 25 cent widget, sells the title of it while it's still on the ship heading toward the shores of the United States to some offshore intermediary company. That intermediary company takes title to the asset and then sells it to the American distributor for $25. So cost 25 cents, price to the U.S. distributor $25, and then it's sold in the retail market for $35, $45, whatever the market will bear. But the difference between the $0.25 cents and the $25 has been captured by an entity abroad, and that is those are the dollars that we're talking about here and trying to repatriate them. The IRS has tried for years through transfer pricing studies and otherwise to try to capture those dollars, but you know it's very difficult to prove. It's all very fact-intensive, uh, and so uh, the administration is looking for a way. So... A couple of uh, theories that have been bandied about and ideas. One would be you use uh, those dollars for Build America bonds. One of the big themes of the Trump campaign, again, was infrastructure. We need to rebuild our roads, bridges, etc. So you sell Build America bonds. Only people who could buy it are offshore dollars from U.S. companies, and you give them a tax break, say, if as long as the bonds remain outstanding and aren't sold for 15 years, then the money is essentially repatriated back into the U.S. without tax. That's a very easy and effective way to repatriate the money for a useful purpose today. Uh, if you use this to uh, build a bridge, you don't have to raise taxes. So the net effect is 
I've essentially taxed that money. And if you allow it to, or if you force it to stay in solution in the bonds until such time as the bonds are repaid, well, then effectively the uh, tax is the low interest rate that they earn, and you can do a present value computation to see if it's cheaper to repatriate the dollars or buy a Build America bond. I mean, that's one proposal that we've heard. The other proposals are much more blunt instruments. If you have, you know, subsidiaries, finance subsidiaries, et cetera, abroad, and those dollars haven't been taxed in the U.S., we would simply impose a look-through rule that would force those dollars to come back. Well, as soon as you try to enforce the look-through rule, then what you're going to see is companies attempting to immediately uh, invert, to move their corporate offices offshore in order to avoid that tax. Well, uh, everyone has been attacking the inversion transactions. The IRS came out with a rule that says they're illegal. Uh, whether or not that rule will ultimately be sustained by the courts is a different question. But uh, everyone hates inversions because they are viewed as a perversion of the U.S. tax system. If you are going to attempt to force repatriation of dollars, you also, at the same time, need to put in some mechanism to prevent inversions. And probably the most effective one for that would be a return to a rule that used to be in place um, when I was uh, initially coming in as a, as a young lawyer, and that's the old 1491-1492 excise taxes. It used to be if you tried to expatriate appreciated assets, there was a 35% excise tax imposed by the U.S. Uh, Congress. You could take the money out. They didn't care. But on the way out the door, you had to pay an excise tax on the untaxed gains. And uh, that was repealed as part of the Reagan revolution in the early 80s. But maybe we need to relook at that, reinstitute it as a way of uh, preventing the uh, exportation of assets, because there can be an unintended consequence. If you try to force people to bring money back and they don't want to, then they may just move the company or dissolve the company or reincorporate elsewhere. And so you need to prevent the adverse consequence of your uh, activity that you select. So will there be repatriation in some form? I believe there will be. The question is, what price are they going to extract? I think a blunt instrument approach is going to have a hard time getting through Congress, but something more creative, like I described in the, the Build America Bond approach, that may actually work. Mark, how is Donald Trump's presidency likely to affect the fintech industry? It's a great question, and I think it could be a mixed bag, and here's why. So we've discussed the fact that on the consumer protection front, well, the, the industry may see some relief in terms of how laws, regulations are interpreted. So, for example, uh, I've already spoken about, you know, UDAP, unfair deceptive acts or practices. Uh, obviously, when you're dealing with, with somebody online, uh, there's, you know, there's a UDAP risk. Uh, and if there is, you know, uh, a, a more favorable approach to how UDAP's interpreted, well, that might benefit the industry. Uh, even more significantly, we know that the fintech industry makes a, a lot of use of big data. Uh, alternatives to traditional credit report information, and you know the, the, the CFPB, for example, you know has taken a very uh, strong stance on you know dis potential disparate impact. Uh, and so, if you saw any uh, you know change uh, favorable to the industry on how 
you know, things like disparate impact are interpreted, well, that might benefit the industry. On the other hand, the reason I say it's a mixed bag is that there's also a, a strong possibility of more regulation. So, for example, for a long time, the industry has actually asked for that regulation to provide certainty around things like you know, federal uh, preemption and interest rate exportation. But with more regulation comes further barriers to entry. Um, you, you'd have you know, a loss of flexibility and, and higher cost of operation. So although you know, things like uh, the, the OCC uh, you know, potential fintech, fintech charter uh, that may be coming shortly uh, you know, may be initially welcomed, uh, additional regulation as this industry matures might also have you know, the impact of, of quelling some of the innovative practices and, and that ease of entry into the market that, that have made the industry what it is now. Okay, I've had you gentlemen over an hour now. Let's wrap it up with two more questions. I appreciate your time. Rick, any thoughts about the FTC and its role in consumer protection? As I mentioned, the FTC is going to get a new is going to get new commissioners and a new uh, chairman. I, I think you're going to see them continue to operate in certain areas, but there's always this tension, if you will, I, I think, between what the FTC does and what the CFPB does. Um, I mean, the FTC has been around a very, very long time, uh, and they, they do not have the same powers, certainly, that the CFPB does. And even though there is this memorandum of understanding between them, uh, I always get the impression that the FTC is sort of the, the stepchild in the, in the relationship. But, um, you know, whether there would be any, you know, changes in, uh, you know, overall structure in terms of, of trying to absorb, let's say, the CFPB back into you know various uh, the various prudential banking agencies. I mean, there's that idea has been floated. Uh, I, as somebody said, there's only been one agency I think that's ever in the last uh, maybe in the history of our country that's ever been abolished, and it had to do with uh, something relating to tea. So I don't think you're going to see the FTC be abolished or the CFPB abolished. Uh, and, you know, this, this, the FTC has carved out certain areas, you know, that are within its expertise. I mean, it, can, it cannot regulate or go uh, do anything with respect to the banking industry, but there's obviously the fintech industry out there, uh, unregulated uh, lenders uh, that are operating. And so I think you're going to see them continue to focus on those activities that they, they focus on fraud uh, and fraudulent conduct, I think that would continue. You know, focused on privacy, lead generators, uh, fintech, uh, online issues in general, and as I said, privacy. So I think you're going to see them continue to operate in those areas. But uh, again, I think you're going to see a much more pragmatic approach, a business-like approach to regulation and uh, that they're going to go after the bad guys, which is what they should do, uh, and not uh, impose burdensome regulations on business that are going to make them less efficient. It's uh, Mark Taberton, I'll add just a couple points to what Rick just said. So one of the areas where we see that the FTC uh, active and where they wield a lot of authority is uh, for uh, non-bank financial entities, the CFPB enforces the, the data protections uh, under the um, Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act. 
So uh, for those uh, fintech firms and other firms that are not banks, then the, C- the FTC would be a very important uh, potential regulator in the area of data security. In addition, uh, one of the reasons that, that the FTC uh, no longer wields the influence that they used to uh, have in the, in the banking arena is that the Dodd-Frank Act transferred the authority to interpret uh, 14 uh, different consumer protection laws over to the CFPB. Uh, most notably, the FTC historically had a very significant role in interpreting the Fair Credit Reporting Act, and you know now they're, they're really out of that picture. So although they may still enforce, they no longer have the same authority to interpret. And, and as Rick stated, unless you were to fundamentally change uh, the relationship between the CFPB and the FTC, that, that wouldn't, you know, you would expect no change in that regard going forward. So I wanted to finish up our podcast on that theme of consumer protection with a simple question for Rick. Rick, is consumer protection dead under a Trump administration? I don't think so. If you look at who his constituencies are, uh, I mean, they include a lot of working class people uh, that, that uh, in many cases have been forgotten, at least they feel like they've been forgotten. And, and so they are going to be, uh, I think, a focus of this administration. And, you know, part of that is uh, making sure that consumer products are being offered uh, in a way that's in accordance with, with law uh, and that they have the right disclosures that are provided that to them and that they understand the kind of products that they're getting involved with. So, uh, you know, one of the things that you uh, always worry about, I think, if you're a Republican administration is that you are viewed as being, uh, you know, in bed with big business. And so many cases, um, you know, Republican administrations have gone out of their way uh, to show that they uh, are, are not in, in, uh, in bed with big business, that they're going to go after businesses when uh, when they, uh, you know, uh, make mistakes. And I think, you know, the, 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 the timing of the Wells Fargo, you know, problem, you know, in terms of their uh, cross-selling scandal, if you will, I think was very unfortunate because there was a lot of discussion about trying to abolish the CFPB uh, as a result of that. But here is a major bank, one of the largest banks in the country, um, that were making things up. To, uh, or their employees are making things up because of their compensation structure. Uh, and whether you could argue whether or not consumers were actually hurt by any of this, um, because I, I, I'm not sure that there is a demonstrable evidence that they were, um, but it just shows that there is misconduct uh, in the marketplace by regulated institutions. Um, and the CFPB kind of got into that whole investigation at the last minute. It was actually the investigation uh, that was started by the district attorney in Los Angeles, I think. But, uh, you know, the CFPB got involved and, and uh, you know, got a lot of credit for it. So I think that really kind of saved their bacon, if you will, in terms of, uh, you know, sort of thwarting efforts, uh, you know, to, uh, to try to abolish them because, you know, Wells Fargo was the target of criticism by both Republicans and Democrats. And so I think that, uh, you know, that is evidence that, uh, you do need a regulatory structure. You do need consumer protection statutes. Uh, and so I think that will continue, although I think it will be uh, a different focus under this administration and not as aggressive or pushing the boundaries, if you will, as the CFPB has, has done on some of their 
uh, you know, theories of liability. I'll add one point. Um, you know, laws like the CARD Act are on the books and, and they're not going away. And so uh, there's no way that no matter who's in the role of, say, director of CFPB, that they're going to be able to ignore, you know, violations of those laws that are, that are already there. And they may be able to uh, interpret certain gray areas differently, but many of those restrictions, for example, in CARD Act, are, are pretty black and white. And those, I do not believe, are going anywhere and will continue to be enforced. So that's all the time we have for today. Gentlemen, thanks for all the time you spent going into detail on these questions. For our listeners, please be sure to be on the lookout for future podcasts on this topic as the year goes along.